0: This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to the hub. kindergarten teacher turned award-winning social entrepreneur, international speaker, comedian, he's hella funny, uh, and author. He is founder and chief reading inspirer at Barbershop Books, a national literacy organization that inspires black boys and other vulnerable children to read for fun. Imagine that, actual fun in reading. Uh, His work connecting reading to male-centered spaces and involving men in boys' early reading experiences earned him the National Book Foundation's Innovations in Reading Prize. His popular TED Talk, How to Inspire Every Child to Be a Lifelong Reader, has been viewed over a million times. Alvin Irby, it is such a pleasure uh, to have you here and so good to have you on this show. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm really excited to be able to speak with you today.
0: It's good. It's good. I was uh, instantly taken with the way you talked about your program when we met just a couple of weeks ago at this amazing training that I'm at some point going to tell all the people about because every black executive director of color and (laughs) every black executive director and executive director of color needs to know about it. Uh, But you have a phenomenal program and I'd actually known about the program for a while before you and I met. What is Barbershop Books? How did you birth this idea? And what do you say is the one thing that you would attribute to its phenomenal success?
1: Um, I'm going to try and hold on to all of those questions. Uh, <laughs> uh, Barbershop Books um, is a literacy organization that is really working to center the voices of Black boys. Um, we ask young Black boys ages eight and below, sometimes a little older, You know, what are the books that they like to read? What are the topics that interest them? And then we curate book lists based on their direct recommendations. And we distribute those curated titles to uh, over 200 barbershops across the country who are in our uh, program network. We also, uh, during the pandemic, launched an e-library where we now um, feature independently published black and brown children's book authors. Um, and it's available to free, uh, for free you know, to anyone uh, by visiting our website at barbershopbooks.org. And then also uh, another kind of exciting program uh, opportunity that kind of grew out of the pandemic is a summer uh, reading program that we developed called Reading So Lit, where we actually hire high school, male high school uh, students of color, And we train them and pay them to uh, lead uh, literacy explorations during the summer with uh, young uh, boys of color ages six to eight. And so, you know, that's what Barbershop Books is doing. How did this all get started? Well, I was teaching first grade in the Bronx. Um, There was a barbershop right across the street from my school. So, you know, no matter where I, I taught, whether it was Harlem, whether it was the Bronx, I always tried to make sure that I, did things in the community where I taught, you know, that was really important to me. So one day I'm getting a haircut and one of my first grade students walks into the barbershop, plops down, you know, on the sofa and he's, you know, kind of looking a little bored. He starts getting antsy. His mom is like, sit down. And so the whole time I'm watching this, all I keep thinking, because he's my student, is He should be practicing his reading right now. Mm. And I wished I had a children's book to give him, but I didn't. And so it was really that chance encounter with one of my students um, that inspired the idea uh, that is now Barbershop Books.
0: Wow. So you were already someone who had a heart towards working with the kids, because one of the things we are clear about, because we always have a, a couple of times a month, we do an education for liberation segment. And one of the things we do not see a lot of are black men in education spaces, particularly for the younger kids. So you already had a heart for this population. Where did that come from?
1: My mom um, taught in the Little Rock School District in Arkansas for over 30 years. You know
0: what? And Hold so, on. I gotta you know, I before, just gotta stop you. I gotta stop you. I'm sorry yeah. because I'm I need to point out sometimes when the ancestors be moving. I ain't know that. We've been talking a whole lot about Arkansas in other contexts and the legacies that come from those spaces. So I just needed to point that out. The ancestors be knowing. Okay, so your mom is in Arkansas teaching the children. Yes,
1: yeah, she laid that foundation. And you know, before I was even out of middle school. I was proficient at putting up bulletin boards because, you know, my mom got all that free child labor uh, <laughs> as a teacher with, their, with several children. Um, so I, I feel like definitely that had an influence on me. Um, I was in, uh, I think my sophomore year in college, I took one education class and, you know, I was reading all these articles and I couldn't sleep. My brain wouldn't turn off. You know, I was like, if I had a classroom, I would do this. I would do that. And it was really, I think, during that second year of college that I kind of decided, you know what, this is my calling. This is, mm. you know, what I'm supposed to be doing with my life. And and I, I stopped fighting it. And what's so interesting is that my high school principal, Vernon Smith, he told me one day after school, he said, you know, Alvin you're going to be a better principal than I ever was. Like he said this to me and I said, I will never go into education, never, (laughs) right? (laughs) But it's so interesting you speak about the answers because I definitely do believe there were a lot of people along the way who saw things in me that I didn't even see in myself and who gave me, you know, spoke words of encouragement or who went out of their way to just inspire and support me. And so I I just want to say that, you know, I didn't get here uh, alone. And the work that that Barbershop Books is doing, uh, we don't do it alone. You know, we have over 200 barbershop partners across more than 40 cities and 20 states. We have other community partners in those areas, individual community members, school districts, library systems, who have made this work possible. This is amazing to me. What, what, was Principal Smith?
0: Was was that a principal from the community? Was he was he one of us from the culture?
1: Uh, yeah, he he was he did have melanin. That, uh, see, and that's, that's important. What you were inquiring that, about
0: that's you you saw <laughs> where I was going with that question. That's exactly what I wanted to know because again it often takes one person, couple people speaking something positive into your life that can then birth all of these other things. So you may not be a principal of a school, but it sounds like you are the principal of a multi-state educational experience. So I think Vernon C. Smith was speaking things into existence. He saw that
1: I, I had a heart for, for yeah. inspiring people. And actually one of the stories I, I often don't even get to speak about uh, because, you know, who talks a lot about high school? But when I was in high school, And I was in a regular English class where we were just, you know, doing short stories and spelling lists. I switched into pre-AP and we, you know, we had to read novels. And I remember the first day when she gave us this book list with all these titles and she said, you know, this semester you will read two novels. And I remember raising my hand and being like, when you say two novels, you mean like the whole book? Because in regular, you know, we was just... You know, and and I remember it standing out Mm. for me how drastic the difference in expectations were and how many white people, white kids there were in this advanced English class and it was a little bit of a shock for me and it ended up leading me the next year to actually survey almost 200 of my peers, my classmates to find out about their reading habits And then I ended up designing a reading incentive program for my high school and the local Barnes and Noble in Little Rock gave me like an $810 grant to implement this this reading incentive program at my high school. And I didn't think of myself as a literacy advocate or anything like Hmm. that. I was just angry that there weren't more students who looked like me in the AP class. And I felt like there was something very transformative and almost radical about the act of reading and 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 reading for pleasure, not just reading what a school or a teacher or somebody else told you to read, but hmm. really figuring out that, you know, there are actually books out there. There's actually things out there that you can read without needing someone else's permission. And I think that was very liberating for wow. me. And I wanted to kind of give that that same insight and passion to others.
0: So you, (laughs) this is amazing. As a high school student, out of your own frustration at what you perceived to be the disparity between what the education you were getting in the same school and the education that your predominantly white classmates were receiving, you created a survey of 200 folks and I'm stuck on that point because I had noted, I I take notes when I'm interviewing folks, Uh, we have a conversation so I got like a whole page of notes on you already, Uh, but like I (laughs) am looking at the fact that you also said for barbershop books you do a similar process. You curate a list based on the insight you're getting from your target audience. And y'all, so yes, this is a conversation about barbershop books, but this is also a lesson in how to organize or build an organization that is going to meet the needs of the population that your heart is yearning for. When you were engaged in that survey as a high school student, I don't know if you knew you'd be using similar skills uh, to talk to eight-year-olds about what they care about, but why is that particular function of your work so important why was it important for you to have a survey for 200 people uh, in your school as a high school student to build that program and why does it matter for you that you are surveying the target population of the group that you're trying to serve before you put together the list of recommended materials for them
1: well i mean the survey i did in high school was honestly out of both curiosity but then also you know when i saw that big difference and the reading expectations. And that was what I think stood out the most for me between these two English classes was just the amount of reading, the quality of the reading. And so, you know, it just made me curious. Well, like how much are students reading just on their own? Um, Mm. And I learned that many of the students didn't read at all if it wasn't required for school. And that was really what inspired me to, you know, create that, that reading incentive program in high school. But in terms of barbershop books and why we actually ask Black boys and why we curate book lists based on what we hear from Black boys is because there's a significant dis, um, kind of disconnect or misalignment between what adults and educators want mm. for little Black boys to read, even the ones who are melanated, and what the boys <laughs> themselves are telling us. I think that there have been significant strides In terms of the diversity of children's literature, in terms of the narratives that are being told, um, but there's still a gap. You know, when we talk to black boys about what they want to read, a lot of the books that they tell us they want to read are funny books, silly books, even gross books. Um, And, you know, but when we look at some of the titles that are frequently being recommended to them, you know, overwhelmingly, you know, their slavery books and civil rights <laughs> books. Um, but though I I do want to just acknowledge that there are lots and lots of diverse authors who are doing amazing work to really make a dent in this. And I would say that just based on what I've seen, even just within the last you know five years or so, there's been some some real traction um in in not just that there are more kind of maybe black authors. But that the types of stories they're able to tell, the uh, types of protagonists, mm. you know, that are, are you know allowed to kind of live in these stories, I really see uh, some significant uh, positive changes uh, being made in that area.
0: You know, this is interesting to me because um, there was a point where I was thinking about a, uh, a a little, you know, a kid's series, a series of books, and I was talking with one of my sister friends, and I wanted it to be for young girls. And I had a son at the time, didn't have a daughter. And I had, it was a play, you know, it was like the Afro Puff Girl, something like that. It was, you know, something. And she listened to me and she was like, Larry, I love that you want to do this, but. I don't think little girls want to read about that. I was like, what? Empowerment and natural hair and super power. And she was like, yeah, (laughs) I think they want to read about jumping rope and riding bikes and playing with friends. and And she was speaking from her experience of observing what her very black, you know, child was interested in and this idea that, you know, eight year olds don't want to read about sharecropping and and slavery days all day as their only source. And unfortunately, Alvin, you're the expert here, not me. It seems like oftentimes those are the books that we sort of shove at the kids. But I've heard you talk before about some of the most popular books that your children in your program are reading are books about like boogers and like books about things that are like funny and exciting, not necessarily historically grounded. Yes. Captain Underpants, God bless us. Diary
1: of a Wimpy Kid, you know, and, you know, there are, you know, I think, you know, other books like The New Kid, you know, where, you know, there are more black, you know, kind of, you know, books that have graphics in them and things like that, that are, that are coming out. But, you know, I do think that, you know, what, you know, many early childhood educators, many of whom, or almost all of whom are women. What they consider to be quality kind of children's literature, or what they consider to be appropriate for instructional purposes, you know, uh, you know, may not necessarily be, you know, what could be, you know. And I think mm. that, you know, there may be a little bit uh, of some kind of implicit biases that play into what books actually get used for instructional purposes. Uh, But I I had a lot of fun and I feel very fortunate to have been able to be a classroom teacher, especially in kindergarten and first grade. Um, I have so many, you know, even though I've been out of the classroom um, for a a while now, you know, many of the stories and the experiences that I had, they literally feel almost like they happened yesterday because I think so much about it, those Mm -hmm. experiences, classroom Mm -hmm. experiences.
0: So if I'm a parent listening, and there are many in this audience, and I'm like, "But well, Laria, Alvin, I need my child to learn about the civil rights movement, and I need them to know about slavery, and I need them to know about who we were before we were enslaved. I want them to know about the greatness of Africa and all this that and the other." Uh, two questions come to mind. Number one, are your kids actively reading those books now? I think we as parents have to ask ourselves those questions. But for you, Alvin, I would like to know what would you suggest that we do in terms of diversifying their their reading material so that there is is the reading for fun narrative my daughter got a hold of a rick riordan book uh, the percy jackson series i'm like there ain't no african like gang those greek guys let me tell you the girl has finished the entire series in like less than two months because yep, she has just yep, loved the yep. storyline How do we take that? She loves reading now. And it was actually a little bit of a struggle to get her in that space. But now she loves it because she's found this series that she's passionate about. How can we as parents introduce our kids to materials that they're going to love reading and then sneak on some black history on, you know, so that they they get that? Yeah, I,
1: I think it's so important. I think it's so important to carve out, you know, opportunities that are solely focused on cultivating the reading identity of children. You know, I think that, you know, I have I, not I think I've encountered a number of parents who are like all my son wants to do is read comic books or read graphic novels. And I tell parents, let me just stop you right there. The fact that you can say all my son wants to read <laughs> that phrase alone is a phrase that many parents wish that they could yeah. say. And so I encourage parents to focus on the reading identity first. Because if a child identifies as a reader, their reading preferences and taste will change over time. Um, but if they don't identify as a reader and they develop mm. negative attitudes toward books and reading, then it it can become equally sticky, mm. right? And meaning that as they get older, you know, reading may not become a kind of a habit or a part of their their kind of identity as a as a person. And so, what I would encourage is to one, make sure that there's always choice, uh, you know, or opportunities for choice. You know, even if there are books that you absolutely want for your, your child to read, um, I, uh, then, you know, make sure that there's also opportunities for them to be able to choose things that they just want to read. I also uh, would encourage parents to not um, move too quickly away from read-alouds. You know, I think that a lot of time when parents think about reading to their children, they think about picture books. But you know, when I taught first grade, you know, my students didn't have nap anymore. And so they would come in, like, you know, like in kindergarten, so they would come in hype from recess, and I would say, y'all not about to be bouncing around my classroom. (laughs) So I would turn off the lights, I would let them put their heads down, they could draw, they could crochet, they could meditate. And I would just walk around the classroom reading a a, a kind of novel uh, for like, you know, a little bit older in elementary school to my first graders, you know, 15 to 20 minutes at a time. And when I would hear students say things like, Mr. Irby, it's like a movie in my head. Oh my God. Many of them had never had an adult read a kind of long longer text to them because they were so young. And so I would just encourage you know, parents to find those really, really kind of, um, you know, uh, books that, you know, you can't put down like Bud, not Buddy or something like that, uh, where, you know, they have cliffhangers at the end of each chapter, the kind of books you can kind of read a little bit of, sit down Mm. and say, all right, we're done. And then the kid is sneaking and reading the rest (laughs) of the book because they want to know what happens next. But those would be Uh, two recommendations. And then the the next one I would share would just be to use your everyday environment as an opportunity to support uh, your child's reading and learning. So for example, you know, I think a lot of parents believe that like reading has to be 20 minutes before, you know, bedtime, but not every, some parents are working two jobs. Some parents You know may only have their commute and so i would encourage parents to think about how they can just create a more customized uh kind of reading schedule or routine that really uh organically kind of vibes with their their you know their week schedule or their days daily schedule so that it doesn't have to be this thing that takes away from something you're already Mm. doing but really you know and i think that's something that i heard from someone about the barbershop you know i remember this this guy told me you know i bring my son to the barbershop and he reads all the time at home but i never even thought about him reading in the barbershop until wow. i saw this grandmother reading with her grandson mm. and so you know i think that that's part of i think barbershop books mission that's part of our work with our reading so live program. Um, As well as our e-library, it's just to let, you know, children and families know that reading doesn't have to be this thing that's only associated with school or with homework, but it really can be something that is just a part of, you know, your everyday um, kind of moments.
0: The idea of reading for pleasure is something that's given me so much joy throughout my life. And so thinking about how to intentionally transfer that love to the next generation is really important. And I want to go back to just something. We only have just a minute or so left, but you talked earlier about the Reading So Lit program where you hire and pay high school boys to be, I guess, mentors or educators for the younger folks in in this program. Talk to us a little bit about the particular... I don't want to call it superpowers but the particular role that black men play when it comes to empowering uh black boys and black male identified people encouraging them to become lovers of reading for fun for pleasure why is it something is there something particular that black men bring to that conversation
1: that we should be aware of Absolutely I mean it's critical you know I, I you know a lot of people in the black community you know say the phrase, you you know, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And, you know, everybody wants for little black boys to read, but few people are asking the question, honestly, why should they read? Because mm. their young white female teacher is telling them that they should read. That's the reason they should be most inspired to read. And, you know, I, I'm not in yeah. any way knocking anyone but today, you know, less than 2% of teachers K through 12 are black men, less than 2%. And when you talk Jesus. about those first few years of school, they're almost, you know, little to, to no black uh, male teachers. And then a majority of black boys are actually raised by single mothers. So you mm. have a situation where many black boys don't have black male reading role models at school or at home. Yet everybody's telling them that reading should be a part of what they should be doing and who they Mm. are. And so, you know, part of our work at Barbershop Books is is around connecting, you know, black male reading role models to the early reading experiences of young boys. And that includes providing early literacy training to barbers so that we set them up for success and give them practical skills and tips that they can you know, use it in the barbershop, but also with Reading So Lit, yes, training young men, high school age boys, ages 16 to 18, to lead fun literacy ex- uh, explorations with boys and mm. it's been transformative for many of those young men. And you know, We've already had a number of them reach back out to us about you know, internship opportunities and have expressed how some of the things that they learned while working with the young children have actually helped them as they've moved on into college wow. and in the work, you know, in their school life. So it's it's been really, you know, I think powerful for us to just kind of hear how we're both impacting the young boys. You know, we had mothers, you know, tell us um, that, you know, reading so lit was the first time they ever had a black man kind of interact with their son around reading. Mm. You know, and, wow. and, and to have, and, you know, to have that come from a, a mother or a father, uh, you know, and, and to be able to say that barbershop books help, you know, contribute to that. I think that, you know, this is part of the solution. I think that, you know, we have to diversify the pipeline into early childhood education and into just K to 12 education. But I think while we're working on that. I think we also need to be thinking about, well, what are the, where, where's the low hanging fruit, right? Right. In these schools right. where the majority of the kids are children of color, they got uncles, they got grandpas, they got daddy, mm. right? Who could be trained to come in and here's something, no matter how diverse the books get, white teachers are not going to be using ethnic accents when they read <laughs> diverse children's books. So what does that mean? That means that for many teachers, they only get super animated when they're reading animal books or books that have characters that they directly wow. identify with. So what, it, what that means is that even though the books are diverse, certain kids may not be fully experiencing those diverse books. When I read my children's book, Gross Greg, there's a uh, there's a, a part of the story that says, you know, you call them boogers. Greg calls them delicious little sugars. And the little sister in the illustration is kind of holding her nose and making this kind of grossed out face. And uh, when I read this part of the story, I kind of add a little bit more flavor to it And I say, you know, it looks like his sister is saying, oh, Greg, you nasty. And then the kids (laughs) burst out laughing. And so the fact that they have this fun, culturally relevant moment. Right. And the fact that those kind of moments may not happen with certain teachers, I think, just illustrates the importance of having guest readers and creating more opportunities To have people who may not be traditional educators, you know, push into the classroom.
0: Alvin, this is I often say we're going to have to do it for ourselves because don't nobody care. And you have filled up my now page of notes. Uh, So as we're filling up the pages of notes, I have more questions. I'm going to actually ask Shayla to have you come back, because I think in addition to wanting the folks to know about barbershop books, this idea about adult literacy and filling in the gaps for our children by training our own people who are already there, who love these little kids. There is a magical formula that you have tapped into there, brother, that I think we need to talk more about. How can people follow Barbershop Books, donate to Barbershop Books on this blessed Giving Tuesday? Uh, we only have like a 30 second window left, but give us the details on how to connect with you so that our audience Absolutely. can support you. If you would
1: like to uh, make a donation to Barbershop Books or find out other ways that you can help the babies read, you can visit our website at barbershopbooks.org. Uh, that's barbershopbooks.org. Um, you can also connect with us on social media. Um, our handle is at Barbershop Books on all platforms. And we would love to kind of, you know, learn from you, hear from you and find out, you know, what are you, the little black boys in your life uh, reading these days? Uh, because, you know, it really does take a village.
0: It really does. And I love that you aren't just thinking about the benefits of the beneficiaries of the village, but you're preparing the village to serve in that role. Alvin Irvy, it's a pleasure, brother. Make sure you get that homework done for the program because, you know, I haven't finished mine yet. <laughs> but It has been such a pleasure uh, to have you here. I'm so glad that the audience knows about this program and I look forward to having you come back. This adult literacy and the ability to be reading role models for our children. There's a magic yes. secret sauce there that we need to explore and extrapolate just a bit. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I would love to come back anytime.
0: Absolutely. Shayla, we gonna make that happen. Thank you, Alvin. We appreciate you, brother. We appreciate you.